Welcome to episode four of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I spoke with the executive director of the Rewilding Institute, John Davis. John is also the rewilding advocate for the Adirondack Council and a land steward with the Adirondack Trust. As some of you may have noticed, I've created an outline for every episode, starting with the moment that inspired each person to pursue conservation. For John, this pinnacle moment he remembers from his childhood was watching a snowy owl swoop out of a tree and attempt to catch a gray squirrel. The path this moment led him on saw him majoring in environmental studies before hitchhiking across the country to write for Earth First. We then dive into the work he does as a rewilding advocate, the importance of building relationships with private landowners to promote rewilding, and the differences that come with working on rewilding at both a local and a national scale. If you would like to learn more about the Rewilding Institute or the Adirondack Council, you can find the links in the description below. If you enjoyed our conversation, I really encourage you to listen to Rewilding Institute's own podcast, Rewilding Earth, hosted by Jack Humphrey. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to The Missing Stone, everyone. Today, I have Rewilding Advocate for the Adirondack Council and Executive Director of the Rewilding Institute, John Davis. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. Sean, thank you so much for inviting me on your inspiring show. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And as we were getting prepared for this, you said you just got back from a long wilderness trip. Where was your trip to? It was in southern Alaska. I was touring some parks in southern Alaska with some rewilding colleagues. We had a wonderful time. We were pack rafting, covered 140, 150 miles and saw uh, saw spawning salmon and bears feeding on those salmon and eagles feeding on the salmon and a whole parade of wonderful wildlife. So I had a great, had a great trip. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. How do you navigate being able to do a lot of these treks and trips that you do uh, with kind of the work that you're trying to get done? I actually see my time in wilderness as essential to my work. In fact, I consider work of a fun variety. I don't, I, it's hard for me to draw a strict line between vacation and work or between work and play. I wouldn't be able to do the conservation work I do if I didn't spend quite a bit of time in wild country. I always learn more in wild country than I do online or almost always. Usually when I'm in wild country, I'm with colleagues who know more about the places than I do. So it's a learning experience for me. It, it, it revitalizes my energy. It informs my work. And it, and I I have long held the view that Dave Foreman, my mentor, held and that before him, David Brower held. To be an effective advocate for places, you have to love those places. To love those places, you have to know those places. So I spend as much of my time in wild country as I can, and I urge other conservation advocates to do likewise. That's absolutely amazing. I really want to talk more about that as we get further in, but I do like to start from the beginning. So I really like to start with each guest kind of asking, what was that first moment or experience that drew you into rewilding and conservation? I am fortunate in that I did not have to rebel to become a conservationist and, and, and even to become arguably a radical conservationist. 
Um, I, in a sense, cut my teeth in the conservation movement with the radical conservation movement, Earth First, decades ago. And I, I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed at all to admit I was an Earth Firster. I did actually participate in civil disobedience and in some what are often perceived as radical actions on behalf of wild places. But I didn't. I did not have to rebel to do that. I was lucky to grow up in a family that valued nature, that supported environmental and conservation causes. My parents and and uh, Robert and Mary Davis and my beloved Aunt Joan especially were very, very active in environmental and conservation issues. So I didn't have to rebel against them to become a wildlife and wildlands advocate. They supported me on on that journey. They supported me in my work, even though my work was almost always low paid and often unpaid. I knew I had, not that, not that anybody in my family is rich, but we we are largely an academic family, a family of service. Uh, middle class in the United States, and you know, uh, by no means poor, but certainly not rich either. So I had a bit of a safety net, knowing that if I ran completely out of my uh, money, my parents would support me, and that they valued the work I was doing for wild places. So my background, my interest in nature, evolved out of values held by my parents and aunts and uncles and other family members, and I did a lot of hiking and some camping when I was young with my family. And that helped predispose me in those directions. But if there was one single moment when I knew that I wanted to learn about nature and speak for wild nature, it was probably when I was 12. I, there's an, until recently, my family on my father's side had an old camp, six generations old camp on an island in Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. And I was on that island, Welch Island in Lake Winnipesaukee, for a while in the summer of when I was 12 and, and most summers in my youth, I was walking across the island by myself one day, as I often did walking through the forest. And I was um, in, amazingly lucky to see a snowy owl swoop down out of a big white pine tree and try to catch a gray squirrel that was loping across the ground. The, the owl did not quite catch the squirrel, but I got a good view of the owl and it, then it went back up and alighted in the top of another pine tree. And I and, and I watched for as long as the owl was there, and then eventually he or she, and I couldn't tell which gender, flew away. But I was so thrilled. I ran back and told my grandmother, and she quickly took me over to my cousin, Moni Donsker, who was a, a an avid birder. And Moni was so excited. He kept a life list of all the birds he'd ever seen, including on Welch Island. He had a list of 80 species he'd saw, seen on and around the island. And he insisted I take him back immediately in case the owl might still be there. Unfortunately, the owl was not there anymore. But he was convinced by, by my description. And he showed me a bird book so that I could confirm it was indeed a snowy owl. And he then gave me a bird book of my, my own and let me copy his Welch Island bird list. And that was really, I think, a, a turning point for me, or maybe turning point's not the right phrase. It maybe is a catalytic moment when I realized there's nothing more thrilling than, than to see or be in the presence of wild animals and to learn about them. And I think that was probably the point at which I decided my, my life was going to be oriented toward wild nature. So there's a lot there that I want to ask you about. But I guess the first thing I'd love to ask you about is from there. So you said that's kind of the catalyst for what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. What were the next steps? Did you have an idea of a place you could go, a path you could take, or was it flying by the seat of your pants? 
Well, I, of course, at that age, I was very young and naive, and I, <laughs> I was, I started boasting to my friends and family that when I grew up, I would move to Northwest Territories, Northern Canada, because it was the least densely populated part of North America back then. It was one person per thirty-three square miles. I remember looking this up. I announced that I was going to move there and live off the land as a vegetarian, which of course is completely preposterous. If you're, <laughs> you're not going to grow many vegetables in the Northwest Territories. Uh, needless to say, I never achieved that goal, though I have uh, spent quite a bit of time in Alaska, not too far from Northwest Territories. But I think uh, from the age of 12 on, I started paying attention to birds and flowers and and large mammals and forests. And I, um, I learned about them some from family members, from my father and mother and Aunt Joan especially, who knew more about the natural world than I did. Um, I paid attention in biology class, although ne I never went as far in biology as I wish I had, uh, but I paid attention in biology class. And after college, uh, I literally hitchhiked across the country. Oh, well, I did environmental studies in college. I had an outstanding professor, an eco-feminist philosopher named Karen Warren, who had a big influence on me. I was at St. Olaf College in southern Minnesota, a small liberal arts school, and Karen Warren was one of my major professors and advisors, and she was a big influence on me. Her eco-feminist philosophy impressed me, and she encouraged my um, my dedication to wild nature and my activist impulses. While I was still in college, I uh, learned about Earth First Journal, and my mother, who had found the journal uh, through her research, uh, gave me a subscription, and I wrote to the, the editor and publisher at the time, Dave Foreman, and said, I'm in my last year of college, and I'd like to do something as a volunteer to help the Earth First cause. Can you give me an assignment? And he asked me to, I mean, it's actually, in retrospect, it's quite amazing that he even bothered to answer this, this college senior whom he had never met, <clears throat> who had just sent a, a naive postcard. But he did answer, and he said, if you can learn anything about the, the rainforest beef connection, what companies, what fast food companies are purchasing beef that is ra raised at the expense of rainforest, uh, beef that is produced by clearing rainforest to, to create cattle pasture. And I did some research and I, I found, uh, at least I thought I found at the time, I, I believe this was accurate, that Burger King was one of the companies that was guilty of this inappropriate behavior. I do not know that they are anymore, but this, this was decades ago. And in, apparently their research was useful enough for at least uh, it was well enough done that Dave Foreman um, told me if you're ever out in Arizona, come 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 meet us. And he didn't expect that I would uh, would hitchhike across the country and arrive at the Earth First Journal doorstep. But that's what I did. And uh, I thought I was going to volunteer a few months or perhaps a year or two of service to the Earth First cause, and then maybe go to graduate school. I didn't really know what, but I I was just imagining donating a, a finite amount of time to the Earth First cause, and then figuring out what to do with my life. I, I started volunteering with Earth, Earth First, and I guess you could say I never left. I, I, I was working with Dave Foreman until the day he died, which was sadly happened last autumn, and I never really left that realm. Earth, from Earth First, Dave Foreman and other followers and I uh, went to found a, a magazine called Wild Earth, and then we co-founded a group called Wildlands Network, and then the Rewilding Institute. So it's all those efforts are in uh, one lineage, you might say, and I've been part of that wildlands wilderness lineage since I was in my early 20s, so for almost 40 years now.
that's you keep bringing up dave foreman and i actually had him written down as somebody i wanted to bring up i was lucky enough to meet him very briefly in 2017 and he struck me as somebody who really was there to try to inspire everybody he could to uh be involved in the environment to be involved in rewilding and uh it definitely, I will say, speaking with you and uh, the few times that we've been able to talk, uh, you say that when Dave Foreman responded to you, you were kind of surprised. But uh, I would say you have much the same attitude. And it's uh, really great to get to speak with you and talk to you because you have that same drive to try to get other people involved. So uh, I can see a lot of Dave Foreman in uh, talking to you, though I did only meet him at one conference, Super Brief. Uh, what was it like to work with somebody who, I mean, he truly dedicated his life to the wilderness. Was that something that imprinted on you early on, or did you kind of come to work with him with that attitude already? I already had the, I already had the, the love of wild places and the the dedication to their protection, but certainly Dave inspired me to stick with it uh, long, uh, for life. I mean, I, I guess I probably assumed that I would always be an advocate for and an explorer of wild places, but I didn't. I didn't know that I was going to dedicate my whole work life to them. I think I thought. I guess I thought it would be a a side avocation. But then once I started working with Dave, I realized uh, this is this is not just a passion that I have on the side. This is this this is the core of my life. So Dave really inspired me to to make it my re- make my reason to be. I guess you could say he is a very inspiring figure. He was a brilliant man, a great speaker, virtually a photographic memory when it came to maps and articles about wild places. A, a, an amazing thinker and writer. And speaker, and he inspired many, many of us. I'm by far, by you know, I'm far from unusual in that regard. I was fortunate to have more time in person with Dave than almost any others of his followers. Probably, I, he really was a mentor to me, and I was something of an apprentice for him. But yeah, he had a huge influence on my life. So, when working with Dave, what's kind of your biggest takeaway, I guess, because I do want to shift back to you. Uh, what's your biggest takeaway from working with Dave Foreman in that time you got to spend together? Many big takeaways, but if if I had to point to one, I would probably say we should protect wild places for their own sake. There are all sorts of utilitarian reasons and personal reasons and and spiritual reasons, all of them good and valuable and important but ultimately we should we should seek to protect and restore wild places and their native inhabitants for this for their own sakes for their intrinsic value for their natural beauty that was one message that dave foreman really emphasized more than almost anybody else i believe uh, it's it's a it's the the core value of what is sometimes called deep ecology now sometimes called ecocentrism and and which neither neither of which is an ideal term, I don't think. But I I believe Dave Foreman was as able as anybody ever to to explain and inspire people with the importance of nature, protecting nature for its own sake, and reminding other people we are not alone. We human beings are not alone. We are 
the earth was not created for us, at least I don't think it was, Dave Foreman didn't think it was, he thought we should learn to coexist with other species. We should allow them the space the space and time they need to thrive. We should not take more than our share of planet Earth. And thinking big was central to Dave's, to Dave's thesis. He said that it was not enough to protect small remnants. We needed to protect and restore and reconnect vast wild landscapes. So that's, those, are, those are some key lessons I took from working with Dave Foreman. I mean, as you explain it, it's uh, it's hard to imagine disagreeing with that sentiment. But you did mention that Earth First, I mean, when Earth First really started, it was uh, fairly controversial. Was there ever a moment where you personally felt it went too far? Or uh, did you always stand by the actions that you guys took? I think some people who identified with Earth First did go too far. Um, I, I, Earth First as a movement didn't, you know, always insisted any of our actions must be nonviolent. We must never put other lives at risk, human or wild lives at risk with our actions. Earth First did not officially endorse monkey wrenching, but it did, in fact, explain how to do it. Earth First Journal did have articles on how to monkey wrench, how to pull survey stakes, how to disable heavy machinery. I, I have not engaged in any such activity in decades, and I doubt I ever will again. I think there is a time and a place for those sorts of direct actions. Earth First employed civil disobedience, like sitting in front of bulldozers much more often than it employed monkey wrenching. But I think there are some individuals who may have gone too far with direct action. I, I don't think Dave Foreman did, and I don't think any of his close colleagues did, but I think some people have gone too far. I, I, there are other groups, not Earth First, but other groups that have used arson as forms of protest. I do. I, I think that's wrong. I th- I mean, there, there have been incidences where groups have, I think, freed mink from fur farms. That's a well-intended action, I assume, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's a helpful action. Th- those freed mink probably don't last long, and they probably don't really belong where they are being released. So, uh, direct action can be misapplied. I think anybody who's considering direct action has to be very thoughtful about the consequences, about whom they may hurt with that action, and about how the public will perceive that action. If if the action is perceived as being violent or harmful to others, probably it's not going to be helpful to nature either. But but that said, I don't think Earth Earth First and people who identified with Earth First, for the most part, were very careful about their actions. Earth First was a associated for a while with what's called tree spiking. There, as far as I know, there was just one incident where a logger was hurt by a, a spike in a tree. That spike was not placed by an Earth First activist. It was apparently displaced by a disgruntled gentleman who was, I, I forget, he was unha- this happened in California. I think he was unhappy because some trees in his neighborhood were being cut, but he had nothing to do with Earth First. And I, I know of no instances where Earth First actions caused bodily harm to anybody. Everybody in Earth First that I know was very careful about this. So, I mean, the big thing, whether it's the activism with Earth First or as you continued on with your career, uh, you were a writer um, as well as an advocate for most of your career. And one of the things I really want to ask you about is, do you ever get the feeling like you're just shouting into a void 
or and kind of feel like things aren't going as quickly as you'd like them to? Or have you been able to find a way to celebrate kind of the small moves that you're able to make? Both. <laughs> yes, I I guess I would say fairly often I feel as though I'm shouting into a void or 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 trying to share messages that just are not heard by many others. But at the same time, I see on a weekly basis gains that colleagues and I are making on the ground. I, I can walk places that I have helped protect. Dave Foreman could walk even more help places that he helped protect. Most of my colleagues can walk places they have helped protect. They can also point to animals and plants, animal and plant species that they've helped to protect. You, there are many tangible gains. Really, I mean, there's a, more than 100 million acres of wilderness in the National Wilderness Preservation System in this country. None of that would have been protected were it not for the tireless efforts of conservation leaders like Dave Foreman and Kim Crumbo and, and many, many others I could name. So our, our work does make a difference. It has protected tens of millions of acres. It has kept homes safe for billions of individual animals and plants and tens of thousands of species. So our work does make a difference if it were not for the work of conservationists, particularly wilderness and wildlife advocates. Uh, this country and this world would be in much, much worse shape. That said, the trajectory is still in a, a negative direction, I'm afraid. We're still, we lose more area of land and water to development and to other harmful uses each year than we protect. Uh, the extinction crisis is worsening. The climate crisis is worsening. So the trends are, I'm afraid, more negative than positive, but they would be a whole lot more negative than they are now were it not for the tireless work of conservationists and environmentalists. Um, I guess if I feel especially powerless with any particular type of message, it would be the importance of minimizing our consumption and, and driving no more than we have to and minimizing our dependence on cars and roads. I that There I sometimes feel as though, I, I've actually spent a lot of energy in my life trying to get around without using cars and airplanes more than necessary. I, I do, I have, a, I have a little pickup truck. I use it commonly. I do occasionally fly. I use roads. Well, I, I use roads very, very often. I do get around by motor vehicle quite often. But I try when I have the time to ride my bicycle or walk rather than drive. And sometimes people, including my wife, to be perfectly honest about it, get frustrated with me saying, you know, you could cover, you could, you'd spend a lot more, more you could spend more time on your work or more time with your family if you didn't spend uh, two hours a day on your bicycle and instead spent 20 minutes in the car. But, but I feel as though, we we really really cannot avert the extinction crisis as long as we're reckless about or maybe reckless is too strong as long as we're careless about the amount that we drive the amount we fly it really does make a difference to wildlife how much we drive and how much we fly partly because of the pollution which is climate causing global overheating part of partly because of roadkill you know anytime we go out in a car i'm last night i drove back from giving a talk on rewilding ironically with my wife i'm afraid we probably hit two or three frogs on the drive back because it was a warm rainy night was it worth <laughs> killing those two or three frogs to give that rewilding talk i don't know certainly from the standpoint of those frogs it was not i hope that they're you know from the from a from a larger perspective i hope 
that the the benefits of giving that talk on rewilding outweigh the the cost of those lives lost. But that's an that's a an area of or that's a type of message where I don't feel I have made any difference at all. Really, I think I'll, I I probably I drive more now than I did thirty years ago. Most of my friends and family they're very aware of the effects of driving, and yet we all keep doing it. So that's just an example of. And it's hard not to. I don't. I don't fault my friends or family or colleagues or neighbors for for driving, and I don't blame them for riding their bicycle less often than I do. Most people uh, just don't have that. You know, many people just are, cannot do it. But in any case, that is a, an area where sometimes I feel like my words have been wasted. Do you ever feel when you look at other parts of the world? Uh, in this case, I think really of Europe, where. Uh, especially places like Denmark have uh, tried to design cities in a way where driving isn't needed as much. Uh, they bike a lot more places, even in bad weather, uh, and they tax their cars a lot more. Uh, do you ever look at those systems and try to see if there's a way to implement them here in the US? Or do you think it's just gone so far that it's it's going to be too difficult to try to implement a system like that. I haven't looked at those systems much. I have a little bit. Um, my aunt Joan has more and some other friends and colleagues I have have more. I think we urgently need to do that in, the, in this country. Actually, the you know all the talk about and promotion of electric vehicles, actually, I find it a bit frustrating in a way because, yes, I think probably if we can, if we can create enough um, decentralized, small-scale, solar and wind energy production facilities this should be done mostly at local and community levels in my opinion not at the mega scale as the corporations want and produce you know mostly clean electricity that way then electric vehicles will be a small part of the answer toward lessening carbon emissions but it's still we're, we're still assuming that we will be a car-based society and a, a car-based economy that economy, that society, I think, are fundamentally at odds with the well-being of wild creatures. We, you know, an electric vehicle is probably as much of a threat to an animal trying to cross a road as is a gas-powered vehicle. So, yeah, I think we should be looking at some of the some of the countries in Europe where emissions are about half of ours per capita, or maybe even less where people use bicycles and public transit more, I think we should be doing that. I'm not very hopeful that we will, though. This, 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 this country, probably more than almost any other, just assumes that everybody who can afford, afford it will have a car, or, and every family will have at least one, and those who can afford it will have more than one, and that's how we'll get around. I, that's not, a, that's not a, a, a wildlife-friendly society, I'm afraid, and I think we should look at other examples I, I, I'm not optimistic that people, Americans will give up their cars, but I, I wish that we could persuade them to use their cars less, to, to walk and bicycle and use public transit more. And I think we would have healthier natural communities as well as less pollution if we went that direction. So do you feel like uh, a lot of these ideas you have around trying to create a society that isn't as dependent on cars, did that somewhat fuel uh, your early trekking and exploration of the natural areas around you. I know a lot of people who are really into wild spaces uh, 
try to jump on a plane first thing they can to see places as far away as possible. And it sounds like you really, I mean, you hitchhiked across the country to Arizona. Um, I know you did the Appalachian Trail. Uh, and recently you were rafting in Alaska. Did a lot of that stem from trying to find ways to explore without creating a footprint? Yeah, I've probably actually explored less remote wild country than I would have had I not been so concerned about the effects of fossil fuel-driven transport. I, I, I do sometimes fly far away to go to wild places. I've been to Africa twice. I've been to Alaska seven or eight or nine times. I've been out west many times. But when I sometimes when I go out west, I take the train. In fact, I, I generally try to when I have the time and the opportunity. I do much of my wildlands exploration regionally. I live here in Adirondack Park in northern New York, where you can get most anywhere by paddling or hiking or bicycling. And so I can minimize the amount I use a car, but I certainly do use motor vehicles a fair amount. But yes, I guess I, I guess I try to find a balance. It's sometimes, it is sometimes important I, for me, for, for my inspiration, for my edification to go to more remote wild places, such as I just did in Alaska. But most of my wild travels are muscle powered and I try to try to keep it that way. I mean, I, and I don't know that everybody has the, has the time or the ability to do that, but that has been a goal for me. So transitioning to, as you call it, muscle-powered uh, exploration, what is the wild space or the trek that you were able to do that holds the most impact on your career today? Well, the two longest I've done, we called, were sponsored by Wildlands Network and the Rewilding Institute. One was from Florida to Quebec, and we called that Trek East. It did use the Appalachian Trail a lot, although uh, the the trek actually wound around much more than the Appalachian Trail did. By the end, it was seventy six hundred miles. Although much of that was on bicycle because it was a it was a, a multi group effort, and we were telling stories about the importance of wide ranging animals and wildlife corridors and safe wildlife crossings. And so I was winding around a lot, and sometimes going from one region to another where it was advantageous to use a bicycle. So it was a muscle power trek, but it did involve bicycles. That had a big influence on me. And I wrote a book about that called Big Wild and Connected Scouting in Eastern Wildway from Florida to Quebec. And then the other really long journey I did, and each of these took much of a year and, and were um, carefully choreographed by, again, by Wildlands Network and the Rewilding Institute and regional partners. The, one, the long one I did out west began in northern Sonora, Mexico at the Northern Jaguar Reserve and went up through the Rockies and adjacent grasslands and deserts to southern British Columbia. And both of those had a big influence on me. Um, and and I would say they actually, they were revitalizing in a way. I did each of these, especially the first trip, I did at a, uh, a difficult time in, in my life. My, my mother was dying of cancer and I had had this wish to do a, a grand Wildways trek, and I wanted to start it while she was alive, and so I actually left a very good job at the Adirondack Council, where I am, I am back at the Adirondack Council now, half time these these days as their rewilding advocate. Back in the around 2010, I was the conservation director there. It was a very good job, and I I didn't I wouldn't have wanted to leave, but I wanted to begin this big trek while my mother was still alive, and so it was it was hard on my wife and stepson, but I but I did set out on this this long journey. And I learned a tremendous amount along the way. And I actually, 
I think, um, gained a little more confidence that our conservation work really does matter and that it's not too late to preserve and restore North America's great natural heritage. I, I did decide that the, the vision of an Eastern Wildway or an Atlantic Appalachian Adirondack Acadian Wildway, such as Dave Foreman promoted in his landmark book, We Wilding North America, that vision is achievable. It would be very difficult. It would require something close to a national consensus, which of course is extremely hard to gain these days. But if we could gain a national consensus on anything in this country in, in these polarized times, I think it might well be that we want our natural heritage to thrive, that we want the full range of native species to, to, to prosper and not just have remnants of natural areas here and there. Most people, at least deep down, even if they don't think about it, love wildlife. Most people are intrigued by wildlife. Whatever people's political tendencies are, they tend to be interested in wildlife. They tend to enjoy seeing wildlife. Now, um, the, the, the species that Rewilding Institute tends to champion the most, the large carnivores, they often are controversial and sometimes politically polarizing, no fault of their own, of course. But I think with education, with outreach, with patiently talking to our neighbors and the like, I think we could get support for protecting and restoring the full range of native species. I think we could get support for piecing back together continental wildways spanning the Appalachian Mountains, spanning the Rocky Mountains, spanning the boreal forest, spanning the Great Plains and other places. So I actually think there is still hope for achieving the goals that Dave Foreman set out so beautifully in rewilding North America of establishing these, what he back then called megalinkages and that we now call continental wildways. So those two long treks, which I did in the Appalachians and Atlantic coast and surrounds in 2011, and then in the Rocky Mountains and surrounds in 2013, they actually, I think, increased my my hope that these are achievable goals, although they also were very sobering in the sense that I realized it will take a huge amount of work. And actually, if there, if there was one message that I would urge Dave Foreman to emphasize more if he had lived long enough to do a second edition of his book, Rewilding North America, as we hoped he would, it's the importance of private lands conservation. Now, public lands conservation is a bedrock of our land conservation efforts, and we should always strive for the highest levels of protection on our public lands and try to increase the public lands base, especially here in the East where we don't have nearly so many public lands as the American West has. But we will always need good private land stewardship, and we can never create at least not in my lifetime, will we be able to create a continental wildway entirely on public land? We have to provide strong incentives for good ecologically oriented private land stewardship or we will not achieve our conservation goals. So that was a that was a, a critical lesson for me on these wildways tracks. And a lesson, Dave Foreman was very much aware of this and he did talk about it some in Rewilding North America, but I think it, it deserved even more emphasis than than he gave it. We We need to be creative in thinking about ways to encourage landowners to protect their forest, to, to coexist with native species, to protect riparian zones, to uh, support free-running streams. All that is is imperative to achieving our conservation goals. There are so many places I want to go from that uh, that response there, but the concept that really ties them all together, uh, you mentioned uh, 
bringing back carnivores and some of the controversy around that. And I actually, uh, two of my earlier guests, uh, one does uh, cheetah research in Africa and the other one does mountain lion work in uh, Utah. And so with both of them, I discussed kind of how, and you said you traveled uh, to Africa. And so I discussed with them how there's a drastic difference in how carnivores and predators are viewed in Africa, partially now that we have this safari uh, mentality around Africa and there's so much financial wealth coming in from safaris and from protecting these species, but how that differs so much from the US. Do you think there's any big takeaways there that we could try to uh, institute in the US that would allow us to bring back a lot of these carnivores? Yeah, and I think one of the takeaways is once a people, a community is accustomed to living around big predators, as most communities in Africa have been for millennia, and as native tribes have been throughout North America and on the other continents, and as many villages to this day are in Alaska. If you spend time in Alaska or Africa, you realize most people just take for granted these large carnivores. They, they're, not a, they're not a frequent problem. Yes, there are conflicts. Occasionally, large carnivores eat livestock. Um, certainly, some residents of Alaska, particularly, are not supportive of brown bears and wolves and actually want to see them shot or trapped. But by and large, the people of Alaska assume that there are going to be brown bears and wolves and wolverines and even polar bears around, and it's not a problem. And villages in Africa have coexisted quite comfortably with uh, with big predators, many big predators, many more than we have in North America for for uh, for for millennia. So I, I think that a takeaway is once a community, once a people is accustomed to living with large carnivores, they can adapt and they do learn to coexist. I, I think in in this country, I think we need to I think we do need to find financial incentives. I hate that we base so much work on 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 people's desire for money, but I think in, in this in today's society in today's economy, I think we do have to find financial incentives to encourage people to coexist with large carnivores. For instance, um, I, I'm a strong advocate for restoring wolves and pumas to the eastern United States, where they've been almost entirely eradicated. Unfortunately, I think to achieve the goals of bringing cougars or pumas and wolves back to the eastern United States and eastern Canada, I think we have to find strong financial incentives so that farmers can afford to co can afford to lose some livestock occasionally. Farmers, if, if a farmer loses livestock to a carnivore, he or she should be compensated, I think. I don't think the farmer should have to bear the brunt of those costs. I think they should be shared by society. And we consumers should be willing to pay more for wildlife-friendly food, for food from farms that pledge that they will coexist with weasels and coyotes and foxes and potentially wolves and cougars. We, I think that we need to share those costs, but also recognize all the benefits of having these carnivores. Really, you know, though you, there are a fair number of people who are f afraid life will be more dangerous if we have cougars or wolves around. That's, a, that's partly a, a question of education. In fact, I think by and large, we are safer if there are large carnivores around. If there is a full suite of native predators, you're less likely to have 
zoonotic disease outbreaks. You're less likely to hit a deer or a moose as you're driving down the highway if you have the, the native carnivores around. So I think we need to do a lot of education. I think we need to provide economic incentives to encourage landowners and farmers and others to coexist with these occasionally challenging species. And I think we also should celebrate how beautiful these wild animals are and how much richer our lives can be if we live in ecosystems that have their full range of native inhabitants. That's a, I mean, that's the point right there is just how much healthier an ecosystem can become with these predators uh, in them and the ability for us to actually really see what these ecosystems were supposed to look like. And you'd mentioned that you started your first trek all the way down in Florida. And I've spent the last five years in uh, Florida, the last two in uh, Miami, and now I'm in Colorado. And it's very interesting, the difference in going from a place where invasive species are almost more prevalent than native species to a place where invasives are still something that we're able to combat and actually try to counteract. And uh, so I really wanted to ask you kind of, as you traveled up the coast on your first trip, uh, did you notice a lot of the differences in ecosystem health as you left these Florida ecosystems that have so many invasives and transitioned into the Carolinas where it's at least for now a lot healthier? Yeah, I did. I, I, did, I did notice differences. I did also notice though, and Florida is, Florida Everglades, I spent a fair amount of time there and and in other relatively wild parts of Florida. And the abundance there is astonishing. E even though it's, there are terrible problems with exotic species, perhaps most famously pythons now in the Everglades, but many, many other exotic and invasive species too. I ran into uh, feral hogs or wild pigs a number of times, and they cause big problems in Florida, as you know, and they do elsewhere as well. But the, the, the natural abundance of Florida is so great that even with all the de development that has happened, even with all the introduced invasive species, you still see astonishing numbers of animals, big wading birds, alligators, crocodiles, manatees. You do still see incredible wildlife there. It's just a reminder of how great the abundance would be if we were to protect enough of Florida's habitat. But yes, there's no there's no denying it. Florida is being racked by problems associated with exotic species, and and more and more of the world is. I I think one of the biggest worries around exotic species these days is the so-called forest pests and pathogens. And you know, we stand to lose in the eastern United States, or partially, probably not completely, but partially lose many of our native species. species. We've already, for the most part, lost the American chestnut, one of the grandest deciduous trees on earth. Uh, we are losing our ash trees now. We may soon, well, much of the southeast has already lost its hemlocks. The hemlock bully adelgid is moving north. It's more and more of a threat to forests in northern New England and and soon in the Adirondacks. So that's, that is a huge problem that I'm afraid will only grow worse. And I think that problem cannot be addressed effectively simply by education or by, or by removal efforts. I think really, as long as we have unfettered global commerce, ships and planes going all over the world with goods, 
that most of which are not really needed. I think the problem of invasive species is intractable. I don't think we can prevent the spread of invasive species as long as global commerce is conducted as heavily and uh, as carelessly as it is now. But yes, the um, going from from Florida, where you see so many problems with invasive species, to the southern Appalachians, where you can be in the high country of the southern Appalachians, like in Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and not really have to think too much about invasive species, although the hemlock woolly adelgid has already wreaked havoc in parts of uh, many parts of the southern Appalachians, and sadly has killed many of the big hemlock trees, both eastern and Carolina hemlock. I could talk to you for absolutely hours about all of this, but I do want to transition into some of your work today. Before we do that, I did have one last question from one of your first answers, actually. And you mentioned that part of what allowed you to really pursue this field is knowing that you had a safety net if you absolutely needed it. And so I wanted to ask you how you think we could try to create a conservation space, a conservation field career that allows people to enter without a safety net? Because that's one of the biggest conversations today is that it's a very uh, it's a very white space. It's a very white male space. But beyond that, it's a space where people really enter it who do have safety nets and there's a barrier to entry for a lot of people. So do you have any opinions on ways we could maybe try to counteract or change that? Yeah. And that is, I'm, I'm glad you emphasized that, Sean. That is a, a, you're absolutely right. It's a major problem. It should not only be middle-class white kids like me who can afford to become full-time wildlife and wildlands advocates. Anybody who loves wild places ought to have the opportunity to dedicate their time and even their careers to those noble causes. A couple ideas, uh, not new, uh, various conservation advocates through the years have, have su suggested this. We should revive the Civilian Conservation Corps and expand it. And it should be it should be made avail available to people, really not just young people, but especially young people from any background. It, and, and it should provide paying jobs, perhaps volunteer opportunities as well, but pay, certainly some paying jobs, many paying jobs for the work of healing, of, of the work of helping nature heal, which is really what rewilding is about. We should be paying people who are interested in removing invasive species, interested in taking down obsolete dams, people interested in removing obsolete roads that fragment the backcountry, people who were keen to help restore missing species, replant denuded stream banks. There could be tens of thousands of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs across our country doing healing work that would benefit wild nature, would benefit human communities as well as natural communities. This is the sort of work that our governments and our society should promote and should and should subsidize. We subsidize all sorts of bad behavior, all sorts of um, hidden benefits to corporations. Why are we not subsidizing the healing work of repairing damaged ecosystems and make and encouraging people from any background to enter that that field? I also think I actually favor compulsory service, not a not a military draft. I don't think the military should be the only option, although I think it's a perfectly valid option for those who want to go that way. But I think 
young people at some point, maybe at the age of 20 or 22, should be required to give a year of service to their country. And I think it should be encouraged that service be um, environmentally beneficial work, work um, helping nature heal. And, uh, and I, I also think that, um, you know, th th I also think that we should make it easier to support conservation and environmental groups so that they can afford to hire more young people and so that they can afford to have more paid internships. It's not easy to keep viable a small conservation or environmental NGO. I, I serve as a part-time executive director of the Rewilding Institute, and we are volunteer-led, though we would like to have the budget that allows us to have an ample staff. We only have a few part-time paid employees because it's it's not easy to raise the funds needed to keep an organization going and to pro provide uh, viable pay to staff folks. So I, I don't know just what the answer is there, but I think somehow encouraging uh, more, or not necessarily more, but more vibrant conservation and environmental groups. But that the CCC idea, and it doesn't necessarily have to be called the Civilian Conservation Corps, but that, that is one of the most fundamental things that I think we should get behind as a country. Here in Adirondack Park, my colleague, Aaron Mayer, also on the staff of Adirondack Council, is a champion for and is succeeding in getting established an environmental training program uh, for young people, and especially for people of color. And that will be up and running very, very soon. Uh, the Timbuktu Environmental Training Center will be in Adirondack Park and will help train people for careers in environmental and conservation work. And we need to encourage more such training centers and, again, a, a much larger civilian, or I think Aaron likes the term, climate conservation corps. Those are some steps that would help. And then, of course, education. I think just helping young people realize that there are careers in environmental and conservation work, helping spread the word through schools and through media that there are these opportunities and that there need there there desperately need to be more such opportunities or we will not be able to avert the extinction and climate crises we probably should have national programs of energy retrofitting to as part of the answer to the climate crisis we should be paying people to go around you know, retrofitting old buildings so that they're so and so they're more energy efficient here in Adirondack Park most of the old buildings leak heat like a sieve. They are not energy efficient. And we would we could usefully employ thousands of people in northern New York, not just in the park, but around northern New York, helping families insulate their homes and their workspaces so that they were warmer, more comfortable, and consumed a lot less energy. We need to be creative in thinking about environmentally beneficial programs that can employ people with meaningful work, pay them livable wages, and make the world a better, wilder place. This is a great transition to uh, the work that you're currently doing today. So you work both with the Adirondack Council and the Rewilding Institute. So let's start first with the Adirondack Council. What are your main projects that you're working on for them? Yes, thank you, Sean. So I work half-time for Adirondack Council and half-time for the Rewilding Institute, and I see them as very complementary roles. Essentially, with Adirondack Council, I try to apply on the ground and in the water what the Rewilding Institute promotes continentally. So it's sort of a regional application of the rewilding principles that Rewilding Institute is trying to apply throughout North America. So what that means is I advocate for and educate about the value of wild places and wild species, including 
wide-ranging and sensitive species and keystone species. And I advocate for the protection and recovery of these wild places and these wild creatures. So more specifically, I speak out for and work with land trusts and the state to help protect wildlife linkages or wildlife corridors. I like to call them wildways within Adirondack Park and from Adirondack Park to the outside. Little background, Adirondack Park is an unusual creature, you might say, in that <clears throat> it's, it is not a national park, it's a state park. And it's actually a little bit more than half private land. It is not all fully protected. The state lands within Adirondack Park are forest preserve lands, and they are kept forever wild by constitutional mandate. And New York is unique in having a constitutional provision guaranteeing the state lands within its two biggest parks, Adirondack Park and Catskill Park, guaranteeing that they shall remain forever wild. They are protected from commercial logging, livestock raising, development, and other ex types of exploitation. So what that means in, in practice is that conservationists advocate for getting as much land as feasible within Adirondack and Catskill Parks into the forest preserve. Once land is in the forest preserve, it is well protected. But that that still, it's not, it's not likely that Adirondack Park anytime soon will be more than half public land. So at the same time, we encourage good private land stewardship on private lands, and we work with land trusts to secure some of the most important of those private lands. So in the wildlife corridors or the wildways linking Adirondack Park to the outside, uh, we are often working with land trusts to identify critical parcels that might be protected by conservation easement or conservation acquisition. In some cases, we at the Adirondack Council are helping uh, link land trusts with resources to make those acquisitions. We are sometimes working with the land trust to fashion strong conservation easements. In general, we're and we're in, and we are encouraging good land stewardship on the part of private landowners uh, through education, through our publications. So, again, realistically, Adirondack Park will probably always be largely private land. I, I hope that it will eventually be more than half public land, but it will probably always be largely private land. And we need to encourage good private land stewardship in Split Rock Wildway, in the Southern Lake Champlain Valley in the Adirondack to Tug Hill connection, in the much larger Adirondack to Algonquin connection. Those are among the key wildways or wildlife corridors in this region. Uh, they, they, they include parts of Adirondack Park, but they extend out in all directions. Also important for habitat connections and for habitat connectivity are streams. Um, really all waterways are critically important, especially in this climate change century. And so the Adirondack Council and other conservation groups advocate for protection of ripar broad riparian zones and full protection of floodplains wherever possible and conserving as much waterfront as we can. So is your work then focused on connecting with nonprofits, land trusts, private owners, as well as like the Department of Transportation to try to get these wildways and connectivity uh, between each segment, or do you do yes. a lot of work with the public as well, general public education? Both, all, both, okay. or perhaps I should say all that. So the Adirondack Council uh, works with land trusts to identify critical lands to help protect. We work with, or we put pressure on the state of New York 
especially its Department of Environmental Conservation, its Adirondack Park Agency, and its Department of Transportation to protect key lands and wildlife corridors to make our roads more permeable for wildlife movement. We're talking a lot with the Department of Transportation, the DOT these days, about how to make culverts more fish-friendly and amphibian-friendly. It almost seems... It almost seems comical to think that a conservation group would pay a lot of attention to culverts, but really culverts turn out to be enormously important in habitat connectivity work because there are thousands of culverts. In any given region, there are thousands of culverts, many of which are not designed with wildlife. In fact, I would say probably very few of them are designed with wildlife in mind, but many of them happen to be barriers to wildlife movement. If If you see a perched culvert, a culvert where the water comes in and then drops over the lip of the culvert into a plunge pool below, you're seeing a barrier to wildlife movement. That drop, that perched culvert, is probably preventing or at least discouraging the upstream movement of fish and amphibians. So we work quite a bit with DOT to encourage the right sizing of culverts to replace when, and in this climate, chaos century we're going to have to replace a lot of the infrastructure anyway it's not going to be durable enough to withstand the worsening storms that we'll see this century so we're encouraging the departments of transportation and local and or or i should probably say town and county road departments when they have to replace infrastructure anyway install a culvert that's fish friendly install a culvert that's amphibian friendly and that, uh, that will likely mean it varies by place but that will likely mean a wider culvert quite likely uh, a half circle or an arch with no bottom so that you have a natural substrate rather than a concrete substrate. And you want it to be bank full width if possible. And you want it to be at grade. You don't want that spill. You don't want that perched uh, lip that prevents upstream movement. So we give a lot of attention to culverts. We also at the Adirondack Council and other conservation groups as well are trying to identify obsolete man-made dams that might be removed. Uh, there are hundreds of dams across the northeastern United States, some of which still vital serve vital purposes like hydro energy production or flood control. But many of these are old dams that were useful a century ago, but are no longer useful. May even be a may even be a danger to human communities as well as natural communities below them because of the the possibility of their washing out in big storms, as has happened several times recently. So we try to identify obsolete or derelict dams that might be safely removed and we and we advocate for their removal um but a big part of the adirondack council's work is is keeping the park as wild as possible keeping it as connected as possible and so we give a lot of attention again to those those wild ways within and beyond the park and then another key part of rewilding of course is speaking out for the wild species themselves we do that in part through the state wildlife action plan. Every state goes through once a decade a state wildlife action plan process. That's just beginning anew in New York. So on that council and the Rewilding Institute and partner groups will be submitting extensive comments on how better to protect wildlife in the state. And we're urging the state to consider not just the imperiled species still here, but also species that may be particular keystone species, strongly interacting species that may not be imperiled, but may be especially important, like American eels, uh, beavers, and very importantly, top carnivores, which are missing. Again, I mentioned cougar and wolf. We have lost the cougar and the wolf from most of 
the Eastern United States. And through the state wildlife action plans, Adirondack Council, the Rewilding Institute, and other groups will be calling for studies to see whether it's feasible to restore them, and if so, how they might be restored. As usual, I have 10 questions I'd love to ask on each answer you have, but uh, let's actually dive into that uh, carnivore aspect of this, because I know there's a lot of controversy, especially in the U.S., with bringing back carnivores to Uh, public lands in a lot of areas that you don't necessarily see in other countries. So how do you feel we need to go about this conversation really of bringing back these carnivores and creating plans that allow for people and carnivores to be able to interact in a healthy way? Early steps include these. We need to educate people on the value of these top carnivores, help people understand that they are not only beautiful and valuable, intrinsically valuable parts of healthy ecosystems with their own reasons to be quite apart from any values they may provide to us, um, but as well that we can coexist with large carnivores and people all over the world have for, for generations. And where you live in Colorado, people coexist with cougars, and they're they're soon going to need to learn to coexist again with wolves when those get reintroduced. The the there's a lot of misinformation out there about large carnivores, and we need to dispel that misinformation. We need to share good information on the values and the beauties of these large carnivores. Until we have strong social support for cougar recovery in the east for wolf recovery in the east we won't succeed we have to have strong social support to 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 release animals without strong social support is is really not fair to the individual animals themselves and is likely to fail uh, because you don't want to you don't want to release big cats to dogs only to have them get shot or trapped or run over by cars so it's very the education is a crucial early step in the process we really need to build strong social support for the recovery of these missing missing species. And we especially need strong support among landowners, among hunters, and among farmers, that we really need the support of those groups or the efforts are likely to to stall or or even be thwarted. And I think part of how we gain that support, again, through education, but also through assuring farmers and and landowners that they're not going to have to pay the consequences of having these animals back on the ground. Wolves and cougars will occasionally eat livestock, probably not nearly so often as many people think, but they will occasionally, as do other. I mean, in truth, I suspect the problem of livestock depredation would decrease if we saw wolves return to the east because we'd have fewer coyotes. More wolves would mean fewer coyotes. And I suspect that coyotes are more likely to go after livestock oftentimes than are wolves. But in any case, I think we should, as a general rule in our society, I think we should pay farmers back when they lose livestock to native carnivores to encourage them to coexist, to to encourage them to allow those carnivores to be out there. Those carnivores benefit all of us. They provide, not that I think we have to justify wildlife in terms of ecosystem services. Wildlife has its own reason to be, and we ought to honor that, honor honor those reasons. But there are benefits for people of having large carnivores out there. I actually think our lives would be safer 
in the northeastern United States and elsewhere if we had the full array of native carnivores out there for, for several reasons. One, we'd probably be less likely to see zoonotic disease outbreaks and a big a big um, disease of concern, a big illness of concern in the eastern United States these days is Lyme disease. I've had Lyme disease several times. It has caused me some, some serious trouble, uh, possibly lasting trouble, although I seem to be okay right now, thankfully. Uh, but many of my, most of my outdoor friends have had Lyme disease. It can be a very serious matter if you don't catch it soon. We probably have less Lyme disease in the East if we had wolves and cougars out there holding in check the numbers of the smaller animals and deer who are vectors for the ticks that carry Lyme disease. Also, we probably see fewer car deer collisions if we had wolves and pumas out there. Coyotes occasionally eat deer, but not all that often. We, we don't have an effective predator for our largest plant eaters now. We need it's healthy ecosystems need carnivores that can eat the biggest herbivores. And we don't have that. Again, occasionally coyotes eat deer, but not all that often. Uh, or when they do, it's often because of scavenging. We need effective predators of deer and moose out there on the ground. And that means pumas or cougars and wolves. If we had those predators, we'd probably have fewer incidents of cars hitting deer or moose. And those incidents are common, and they're sometimes fatal or injurious to the people as well as to the animals. I think the figure is, I could be wrong about this, but I think I've heard an estimate of 200 Americans a year die in car collisions with animals, and that's, I think, mostly deer and elk and occasionally moose. That would happen less often if we had healthy large carnivore population. So I, far from being a threat to human safety, I think that carnivores, large carnivores especially, actually make our lives safer. Again, I don't think that's, I don't think we should have to justify animals in terms of human values, but there are human values. And, 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 and more importantly, they, they, they are beautiful members of the biotic community and we ought to welcome them home. And we have in the Northeast United States, ample prey, ample habitat, for these missing carnivores, but we need to build the social tolerance so that they could thrive. That's super interesting. And it's partially interesting because I spoke with uh, two uh, large cat conservationists, one that works in Africa and one that works in Utah. And one of the primary uh, factors both of them brought up, uh, they didn't focus on a lot of those stats that you brought up there. So that was really interesting. They both of them mentioned uh, large cat tourism. So, yeah. or not just large cat, but carnivore tourism and how uh, a lot of the behavior we see in mountain lions here probably stems from hunting and wolves as well. And even if you go down to South America, the uh, mountain lions or pumas down there have much different behavior. You're able to get uh tourism safaris uh around those species and if you go over to africa i mean the safari is uh really centered around the large cats mostly and so we actually kind of see that successfully in yellowstone with the wolves do you think that plays a factor in new york as well or do you feel these other factors are going to be much larger i think it could be a factor i think we should be honest and admit Carnivore watching is not likely to be as easy in eastern deciduous or mixed forests as it is 
in many Western ecosystems, which tend to be more open. Now, there are lots of exceptions, but it's easier to see large carnivores in a grassland or a savanna or a, an alpine zone where this open habitat than it is in a thick deciduous or conifer forest. So I don't think we should exaggerate the wildlife watching potential, but it is there. And if people can get pleasure from seeing tracks or hearing howls or seeing or hearing other sign, you can you can you can be confident of if if there are pumas in an area, you can be pretty confident if you have time, you can find tracks. You can probably find a kill. You can probably find a scrape. If there are wolves in the area, you can probably hear them howl. You may not in an eastern forest, you might not be lucky enough to see them more than once or twice in a lifetime because they can just vanish into the trees, which actually gets to your earlier point that your earlier interviewees made. I think that's true. I think the reason one reason why we see these carnivores so rarely, along with in the east, the thickness of the forest, is they 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 know to fear people because of centuries of persecution. They know they may get shot or trapped. And so they flee from us. So yeah, if we actually want to have rich wildlife watching opportunities with these large carnivores, we probably would need to fully protect them and help them realize that we're not necessarily going to pull out a gun when we see them. But I, I do think the wildlife watching opportunities are, are an important argument to make. And uh, my friends, Chris Spatz and John Landre, John Landre was a leading carnivore biologist who sadly died a couple of years ago of cancer. He and Chris Spatz, who's still very active with Cougar Rewilding Foundation, wrote a paper well, maybe 10 years ago or so ago, I think it was called the Yellowstone of the East, rewilding the Adirondack Park, something along those lines. And they they made that very point. They said that if we were to restore the cougar and the wolf, I think they also urged augmenting moose populations, which are moose are here, but in small numbers. And I believe they may have even ventured the hypothesis that there may have been bison and or elk here, at least in the valleys, if we were to have several of those big charismatic mammals, wildlife watching opportunities would grow. Uh, again, especially if people can be can get joy from tracks and howls. Uh, and they, I think, they argued that economically that could be a big boon for Adirondack Park. If you made Adirondack Park the Yellowstone of the East, they said it would actually really bolster economies, and that may be a way of winning local support. That may be a way of overcoming opposition and gaining the, the needed support for carnivore recovery. So you have the benefit of being boots on the ground. You're working with private landowners that own property that buttresses or is surrounded by the Adirondack uh, State Park. Mm -hmm. So what what's the temperature on the ground when you go and talk to these private landowners around these issues? Yeah, a common sentiment here in Adirondack Park, and I think in many places, is that if the missing animals come back on their own, that's wonderful, but I don't want the government interfering. I don't want the government actively reintroducing them. And and here comes a paradox, because from what scientists are finding, and John Landre made this point a long time ago, it's been confirmed more recently by Panthera studies, cougar recolonization is not likely to happen anytime soon in the northeastern United States. Their nearest populations are too far away. Their nearest populations are in South Florida and in the, the Black Hills of South Dakota and the Badlands of North Dakota and maybe on Pine Ridge in Nebraska. 
So that that's a long way away, and a, and a great many guns and roads, to be blunt about it, in between those populations and the healthy habitats they could find here in the northeastern United States. And because with cougars, more than with wolves, it's usually the young males that light out for the territory, so to speak, that that, that wander widely in, see, in search of a new home range. And what tends to happen tragically, so cougars do occasionally make it into the northeastern United States. They make the, once in a while, a young cougar, usually a male, will make this heroic journey, but he will keep moving because he's looking for a mate. He's looking for what, looking for love in all the wild places we like to jokingly sing. And he doesn't find it because there are, there, there, there is not a breeding population here. There are almost, there may be, once in a while, there might be a female puma here that somehow gets here or an escaped pet, but there's not a breeding population of a likelihood of a young male puma finding a female in the Adirondacks or Northern Appalachians is vanishingly small. So what happens is they keep moving and eventually they get hit by a car or shot. So natural recolonization of pumas or cougars into the Northeastern United States or elsewhere in the U.S. East is unlikely in the near term. So if we are to get them back on the ground, active reintroduction is probably the only feasible way it will happen in the short term. So there's the paradox. People say, they're well, if they come back on their own, great, but I don't want the government bringing them back. Well, they're probably not coming back on their own. So wouldn't you be willing to have the government at least study the feasibility of restoring them and then do some education and and maybe some carefully conducted releases in the wildest parts of our region. If we don't do that with pumas, they probably won't come back anytime soon. Wolves are a somewhat different matter because with wolves, and wolves, the, in, in one respect, wolves are more complicated because the genetics are so confusing. Whether Adirondack Park originally had the red wolf or the gray wolf or both or something in between or something a little bit different from both, is not entirely clear. We may have had actually two types of wolves here. We're not sure. The Algonquin, but we have wolves within a few hundred miles. Algonquin Park has a breeding population of wolves. And sometimes the females do travel long distances. Sometimes even, I, I think I've heard or read that sometimes even the couples will travel together. So it's more it's more feasible that wolves would recolonize the northeastern United States in the relatively near term than that cougars would. Again, partly because the females do sometimes move long distances. I think they sometimes move in pairs and because their nearest populations are not so far away. It's not an easy journey at all. And I mentioned the Adirondack to Algonquin Wildway or Axis, A to A Axis. Uh, that's actually the name of a collaborative that is working to protect this wildlife corridor from Adirondack Park to Algonquin Park. It's largely led by Canadians, and so it's more often expressed as Algonquin to Adirondack, either way, A to A. Even traversing that for a wolf is very challenging because particularly near the St. Lawrence River, the de and, and especially on the Canadian side, ironically, the road density is very high. Much of Canada's population, as you'll soon see when you go up there to go hiking, Sean, that much of Canada's population lives within 20 or 30 miles of the U.S. border. And so that... So just north of the border, it often is the case that you go from relatively intact habitat to more fragmented habitat when you go north from U.S. into Canada. And that for the A to A area is somewhat the case. The road density on the north side of the St. Lawrence River is very high. So we really need 
safe wildlife crossings if wolves are to have a chance of recolonizing. And we need those for, for many other animals too, who are, who are getting hit and killed by multitudes on roads on both sides of the border, but especially on the Canadian side. So uh, that's a long-winded answer. But because of that difference, at the Rewilding Institute, Adirondack Council is a little more cautious. We are more careful about winning public support and being careful not to alienate people. The Rewilding Institute is a little more willing to go out on a limb and 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 bluntly say what is ecologically needed and then hope other groups will take inspiration and do the education. But at the Rewilding Institute, what we tend to say is we support, along with the, the needed education and building social support, we support active reintroduction of cougars once we have that social support. With wolves, we tend to think we should probably let the, the large canids sort things out themselves, work to protect those wild ways, work to put in safe wildlife crossings so that wolves might recolonize on their own, and let the wolves and the coyotes sort it out. Because wolves and coyotes do intermix some. If we got enough wolves, they would probably tend to outcompete the coyotes. But if you have only a small number, there is there is the, the real risk that the wolves get swamped by coyote genes. Uh, so we, we tend to think active reintroduction of cougars is needed once we have the social support. With wolves, possibly natural recolonization can work if we do a really good job protecting their habitat. So with those wildlife corridors that would be needed to help wolves repopulate these areas, with the Adirondack Council, uh, are you guys currently working on trying to put in more wildlife corridors or work at least with the government to get wildlife corridors put in place? And what does that process look like? Yes. And, and I won't pretend that either the Adirondack Council or the Rewilding Institute is leading that effort, really. It's, but there is some excellent work ongoing. Both the, Re, both the Rewilding Institute and Adirondack Council are part of the A to A collaborative, the Algonquin to Adirondack collaborative. And that is an, a, 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 a loose-knit but very strong network of groups advocating for protecting that wild way or that habitat linkage from Algonquin Park to Adirondack Park. So this summer, in fact, quite a bit of work has been done surveying where roadkill is happening on both sides of the river. On uh, and the, the river, the St. Lawrence River divides the U.S. from Canada in this area. So um, road ecology surveys have been ongoing. The New York Department of Transportation has been cooperating on the U.S. side. Uh, researchers from Clarkson and other universities and colleges in the area are very involved in this. Kate Cleary has been one of the lead researchers and has done a wonderful job of spearheading. She's with SUNY Potsdam. So some road ecology surveys are happening on both sides and identifying specific places where wildlife crossings are needed. The advocates and the researchers will then go to the departments of transportation or are going to them and saying that here's a very important place for wildlife crossing. Uh, please study what is the best type of crossing to put in here. And, I, and ideally, with wildlife crossings, you have you have many, and you have both underpasses and overpasses of various sizes. So actually, uh, along the St. Lawrence River, often the victims of roadkill are turtles, frogs, and snakes. They probably don't need crossings as big as wolves will need. And it may be less expensive, it may be much less expensive to get in safe crossings for some of these smaller animals as compared to the larger animals. But really, we need underpasses and overpasses of various sizes, and they need to be strategically located. For the, for the amphibians, particularly, the crossings near streams and along streams 
are often especially important. In some cases, you don't have to install new infrastructure. You may just need to make a culvert. I mentioned culverts again, or a bridge uh, more animal friendly, more wildlife friendly. Just make it, it sometimes planting natural vegetation instead of having riprap or concrete can go a long way toward making a, a, a crossing viable. Sometimes having fencing that funnels animals toward the crossings is important. And, and actually, I think it is often emphasized in road ecology these days that the wildlife crossings themselves are urgently needed, but you also do need fencing to guide the animals there. It, and, and, and it also is emphasized sometimes, don't expect the animals to all find these crossings right away, but over time you can be confident they will find them. And I think this has been the experience with the crossings you'll soon see at Banff, that apparently the first few years there were a lot of critics saying these aren't really working. There aren't all that many animals using them. Now that I think there's no doubt they are working terrifically. I think roadkill frequency is down by more than 80% in Banff National Park since these were installed. It took a while for the animals to figure out where they were and how to use them. Now, but these carnivores particularly are quite intelligent, very intelligent, and they teach their young. So the grizzly bears and the wolves and so forth, they teach their young. Here's the safe place to cross. So they become more effective with time. And more of those urgently needed wildlife crossings have been installed, in, as far as I know anyway, in the Western United States and Canada as compared to the Eastern United States and Eastern Canada. I think partly because they're more big charismatic species in the West. And I think partly because the animal migrations are sometimes more pronounced in the West because there's such a dramatic difference in topography between the valleys and the mountains. Quite a few animals actually make altitudinal migrations to go to the lower country in winter and that, and and conversely that go up in summer. That's those uh, t t topography is more subtle in the east. Our mountains, our tallest mountains, are only five or six thousand feet. So those sorts of migrations, if they happen, are more subtle, and it's a little harder to point to a place to say, as with the you know the path of the pronghorn uh, from the Tetons down to the Green River Valley. That's a very obvious, very prominent, urgently needed wildlife migration corridor. It's harder to point to those sorts of things in the East, but all over the country, we need safe wildlife crossings and they need to serve the full array of native species. And that's partly what rewilding is about. You know, it is partly about restoring the missing species. It's also about protecting and restoring the connections the animals need to be able to move. And movement is as critical to life is, as is earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, movement is is fundamental and these animals need to move and we need to make our infrastructure more permeable so they can. And we have a good opportunity to do that. Again, our infrastructure is falling apart already. It's going to fall apart even more as our storms worsen. We're going to have to replace bridges and culverts and roads anyway. As we do so, let's make them permeable to wildlife movement. So speaking of needing corridors specifically for small rodents, amphibians, smaller species, uh, in your adv advocacy work, have you found that it does help to try to specifically focus on these small species, or have you found more success using umbrella species? I think we need to do both. I think, and my colleagues at the Adirondack Council, Rocky Aguirre and Jackie Bowen, are often urging me, yes, of course, keep talking about wolves and pumas, but also talk about other species that may not be as charismatic, may not be as dramatic, but are similarly important. Let's talk about the whole biota, the whole array of native species. 
Some people are more drawn to the big charismatic mammals. Some people are more interested in birds. Some people, I, probably not as many people, but there are, there are plenty of people who are, or maybe not plenty, but there, there are many people who really care about amphibians and fish and so forth. So I think we, as rewilding advocates, should be speaking for the full range of native species. But I also do think it makes sense to have in mind, at least, and probably in, on, in our reports as well, some focal species and some um, umbrella species that can help represent the larger biota. So Dave Foreman, my mentor, and my late mentor and leader at the Rewilding Institute used to urge those of us in the East. Sorry, but is that getting to be too much background noise? No, you're you're definitely so, good. Okay, somebody just started a long on. Um, he used to urge us to see the cougar, again, the cougar, as the ideal flagship species for rewilding the East. He said, if you're going to look at, if you could only choose one species for your efforts to inspire people and educate people to rewild the landscapes of the Eastern United States, the cougar is the ideal one because it, it needs a lot of space. It ranges widely, it plays a keystone role in helping control deer numbers and behavior. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful animal that any of us would be thrilled to see. So he saw that as the ideal flagship species. And then my 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 friend Michael Diamico, who has worked a lot on coastal and waterway issues, has suggested that if you were to choose one aquatic species as an ideal flagship for eastern wildways recovery, that would be the American eel. He he basically says if you if you could only give a lot of attention in your advocacy efforts to two species, yes, choose the cougar for land and choose the American eel for water. And the American eel is to eastern waterways similar to what salmon are for Pacific waterways. So the American eel originally was in most streams from the Canadian Maritimes all the way around to to the to the Rio Grande. I mean, they're they're Believe it or not, there were probably American eels in the San Juan Mountains uh, until until people started upsetting natural systems. They 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 went up the Rio Grande, so they were up into the San Juans originally, probably, and they are supposed to be well up into almost all eastern watersheds. Um, they're they're probably an important predator, though we don't know very much about them. Um, they they are an indicator of stream health, so they're a very good flagship species, and they're in trouble, unfortunately. They are not extirpated the way cougars are. They are still in many eastern streams, but their numbers are way down, and they have been extirpated from from many. But I, but I think it's good to choose a suite of indicator species, and that's what Wildlands Network and the Rewilding Institute have tended to do when they are drafting conservation plans: is choose a finite number of species whose protection will benefit a, a much wider array of species. And, so for eastern forests, I would say very good indicators and flagship and umbrella species would include forest interior nesting songbirds and salamanders, brook and lake trout, American eel, cougar and wolf and, and moose, I think would be all very good. And then I think we also need to think rewilding is not just about animals, it's about plants and other organisms too. We need to think about foundational or keystone tree, tree species and other plant species. So in the east, hemlocks are extremely important for shading streams and for giving cover to many animals, particularly in winter. Unfortunately, our hemlocks in the east are in jeopardy now because of the exotic invasive hemlock woolly adelgid. Mm. But hemlock trees could 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 serve well as a as a keystone or umbrella or flagship species. And there are other trees and other the American chestnut 
would have been an ideal and still is it's it's been decimated but but advocating for american chestnut recovery uh, i think is another good goal of rewilding so speaking of your uh, efforts at the rewilding institute do you ever use what you're doing at the adirondack council to uh to test not necessarily theories, but to kind of put into application what you're proposing at the Rewilding Institute and kind of see real-time feedback on it so that you can shift some of that? Or do you try to keep those two roles separate? No, I try to I, I try to have them inform each other. And um, there's a, you know, it's unofficial, but I think there's a good symbiotic relationship in the rewilding realm between Adirondack Council and the Rewilding Institute. The Rewilding Institute often is educating and inspiring and this it, in this grand at this grand scale north american wilderness recovery is really what we're promoting or rewilding north america as dave foreman's landmark book title was and adirondack council is testing these ideas on the ground so i mean part of what i have learned through my work with the adirondack council is the importance of talking with landowners working with landowners the importance of communicating with farmers and hunters you know, communicating with people who may not agree with us, at least initially, and have a very strong stake in how our land and wildlife is treated. So I, as I've been saying a decade ago, I think I mentioned last time we talked, actually 12 years ago now, I guess it was, I, I did a long trek from Florida to Quebec to explore the idea of an Eastern wildway. And one of the conclusions I reached after many thousands of miles of trekking was an Eastern wildway, or really a series of Eastern wildways, is still possible but that it would require an amazing amount of cooperation and even a near consensus from a broad cross-section of people to achieve it's not too late but we have to have much more cooperation and agreement that we want to actually protect and restore our natural heritage so i think it's really important to work with landowners i think it's really important to work with farmers and hunters and others who use wildlife in some way or another and hear and hear their voices but also try to influence them i don't i'm 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 often going to disagree with some hunters i'm often going to disagree with some farmers about their management practices i think we need to have those conversations but it we even in the west but more so in the east we cannot protect any regional or continental scale wildways adequately without protecting without promoting good private land stewardship as well as full protection of public lands. We need both fully protected public lands and well-stewarded private lands. And so we need to give good incentives for private landowners to do the right thing. I think we need to find ways to have governments or corporations pay landowners for good land stewardship, perhaps through carbon sequestration programs, perhaps through payments for ecosystem services, quite likely, I would hope, through both and other means as well. We really, landowners should be paid to do well by their land and for the wildlife on the land. And right now, those incentives are not in place. There there are weak incentives some places, but they're not nearly strong enough. Landowners should know, I will do better financially as well as spiritually and aesthetically if I protect the wildlife on my land than if I overly exploit it. And that's not the case now. We need much better incentives much stronger incentives for good private land stewardship and the big thing with the eastern wildways that you were discussing is they're they're much more difficult than western wildways considering just the sheer amount of people that are living on the east coast in comparison 
That's right. Uh, and, and I, I may be in a minority in wanting to emphasize this, but I do believe that human overpopulation is a fundamental challenge to addressing both the extinction crisis and the climate crisis. I believe we need to be promoting small, close families and supporting groups like Planned Parenthood and educating women and girls, um, or I should say educating and empowering women and girls. That's one of the most effective means of slowing population growth. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but there should be a lot more power in the hands of women and girls should be educated and have more options. And if if we as a society and as a global civilization were to promote those ideals, I think we would see population stabilize and, and ideally slowly decline as fertility rates fall. Um, so the, Ameri- uh, the the U.S. East is heavily populated, and it is a, it is a fundamental challenge for rewilding. It is it does make difficult protecting the wild ways that wandering animals need. Uh, I hope our population will peacefully, slowly stabilize and then naturally decline through lower fertility rates. That would help a lot with all our conservation efforts. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, uh, human population is a big challenge for conservation and and where populations are still growing, as is the case many places, uh, it's eating up habitat. So yes, East wildway protection and restoration is harder in the East than the West for really for those two big reasons. One, the East has less public land than the West has, and two, it has a higher population density, generally speaking. So I want to respect your time here. Uh, I really appreciate how much that you've given me. So to kind of conclude this section a bit. Uh, what are the big goals that you have with the Rewilding Institute and the Adirondack Council moving forward? One thing that we are exploring at both the Rewilding Institute and Adirondack Council is getting more people involved in wildlife decision-making. Right now, while what, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but wildlife management is primarily the province of states in the United States. It's je- m- most wildlife management decisions are made at the state level. Some are made at the federal level, particularly where there are endangered species or migratory species involved, But especially at the state level, but at the federal level too. The influence over wildlife decision-making usually falls into a small set of hands. And though it's in, to be blunt about it, it's largely old white men and they are often... Um, Hunters or farmers, they're, 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 they are in the sporting or agricultural industries or fields, and there's nothing wrong with those people. They should have they should have influence over wildlife decision making, but they should not have exclusive influence. We we are exploring getting more people involved in wildlife decision making. People of color, tribes, wildlife watchers, hikers, paddlers, everybody who cares about wildlife should have an equal say if they are informed in how wildlife decision-making is conducted, it should not be the province only of hunting and fishing groups and and agricultural interests, which is generally... So one way we're doing that is that I mentioned this is an upcoming round of state wildlife action plans. They get updated every 10 years, every state. And so in the Northeastern states, especially in the Southwestern states where the Rewilding Institute has strong interests, uh, the Rewilding Institute is preparing to try to help organize people to speak out during the state wildlife action plan process, the SWAP. It's called the acronym for the state wildlife action plan, SWAP. 
And in New York, particularly where the Adirondack Council is so strong, we are going to try, we have a, a, a great black environmental leader on our staff, very powerful, charismatic individual named Aaron Mayer. And I'm hoping to work with Aaron to invite more people of color to involve themselves in the swap and to reach out to tribes and urge them to speak up in the swap. I think that if we, if we, get a, a greater amount of democracy into wildlife decision making we will also see ecological benefits i think it was i think in the interest of democracy and in the interest of ecosystem health i think we need more voices involved in wildlife decision making and that's part of what we want to do and we think that will advance rewilding aims it's admittedly a bit experimental i don't know that this has been tried many places before but it's an opportune time with the, sw the swaps being renewed. And there's, of course, a growing recognition that uh, people of color and others have been unfairly disadvantaged for generations and need to be given a much greater say. And I would like us to apply that hard lesson to wildlife and public lands realms. And, you know, right now, it's a pretty small subset of people who make the decisions regarding how we manage federal lands in the United States, how we manage wildlife state by state. We want more voices and we want more ecologically informed voices in those processes. So both the Rewilding Institute and Adirondack Council, in part through the state wildlife action plans, will be trying to will be working with Wildlife for All Coalition and others in trying to broaden the input and speak up more for some of the species that are not benefiting from wildlife management as it's currently conducted. And I hope those species will include the top carnivores that I've mentioned, wolf and cougar and other missing species. In terms of encouraging people to speak up, for those who are listening and want to become involved in rewilding and land stewardship, what's your advice for those people who are looking to get involved, whether it's with your groups or just to be uh, just to get involved in general? So soon Adirondack Council, which is adirondackcouncil.org, will have material up on our website about the State Wildlife Action Plan and how to get involved. We, have, we haven't done that yet. It's The process is just being renewed. We will get that up fairly soon. Likewise, for southwestern and northeastern states, at least, the Rewilding Institute's website, which is rewilding.org, will have information on how to get involved in the State Wildlife Action Planning process. But I would also urge people you don't necessarily have to wait for those websites to post the information. You can go to the, it's not hard to find you through Google or another search engine. You can find what is the name of your state wildlife agency and go to their website and then put in the search bar, state wildlife action plan. Read the last one, which may have come out 10 years ago, and then think about how to make it better. Think about how to make it better for wildlife. Think about how to get more people involved in the next round of the swaps. And 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 to talk to your neighbors, talk to your family, get people to speak out through that swap process for the missing species and the imperiled species and the wide-ranging species that might not be in the plan already. And then make sure that the state wildlife agency actually implements the plan. The plan itself has very little value unless it's implemented. So getting strong state wildlife action plans is a critical step, but we also need to make sure these plans are implemented. And at, at the same time, I think working with local wildlife advocacy groups and land trusts and others for better protection of our lands and waters and our wildlife thereon is critically important. So uh, since this comes out in about uh, six to seven weeks or so as of right now, uh, 
I'll reach back out and make sure that any links that you have up at that time, and I can edit them later too, so that people hopefully can have a link in the description to this podcast. Good, good. Thank you. So to close these podcasts, I tend to like to ask the same few questions just about conservation in general. And so the first thing I really like to ask people is what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? And we've touched on this a lot, but just to kind of repropose this question. Yeah. And I'll repeat. And I say for young people with ecological mindsets and natural history knowledge that can be gained through school or from time out on the ground to get involved with our public lands agencies, our wildlife management agencies, our departments of transportation, that is vitally important. It's also important to have people, young people with ecological mindsets and, and knowledge to get involved with corporations, to improve corporate behavior. But I guess I tend to emphasize the opportunities with government because I see government as having such potential and yet falling so far short right now. The, the, our, our wildlife and land man, management agencies are not treating land and wildlife nearly as well as they should. And it's partly because they are stuck in old mindsets. Now, we need a new generation of conservation-minded, ecologically-oriented leaders to take over at departments of transportation, to take over at state wildlife agencies, to take over the federal land management agencies and make them much more ecologically oriented, much more beneficial to the full array of native wildlife and more democratic. So that's one area where I would like to encourage people of all ages, but particularly young people who are wondering about their careers in the future to, to get involved. And then I, I think it's also vitally important just to talk with our neighbors about why we value wildlife and to see if we can convince our neighbors to, to live in a way that supports wildlife conservation. I mean, what, one of the little steps that people can take and can encourage their neighbors to take slow. If you're, when you're driving, be conscious that there are animals trying to cross the road, maybe drive a little more slowly, especially at night. So much of roadkill happens at night. Um, if you live in the East and it's a rainy spring night, it's probably not a good idea to drive if you don't have to, because you're probably going to hit frogs. There are lots of little things we can do that would benefit our wild neighbors. And I think learning ourselves and then sharing what we learn with friends and family is really important. So then what areas of conservation do you really want to see grow? Private lands conservation really needs to grow. We need, again, we need strong incentives for private lands conservation. I don't know that it has yet been figured out what those might be. That's a really good area for study. Actually, we need economists and social scientists and others to figure out how do we encourage landowners to behave in such a way that wildlife can thrive on their holdings? And how can we sustain uh, those practices? How can we make it affordable and even profitable for landowners to do the right thing? Right now, if you want to make, if you want to profit from land, you generally have to exploit it. We have to somehow in change things around so that if you that you can profit from land by conserving it and even restoring it so i an area of of urgently needed growth in my opinion is private lands conservation and incentives to encourage that so then next up would be what concerns do you have about the future of conservation well the human population is still growing and that is a that is a 
a major challenge to conservation and restoration all over the world, uh, even in the, the the relatively affluent countries where population growth seems to be slowing some, even there, the population generally is still growing, at least in many of them. And that's a, that's a, a big and ongoing concern. I think we cannot effectively address the extinction or the climate crisis without acknowledging that we are too many right now and we consume too much. So we, we have to get the peacefully, compassionately, fairly get those numbers down in terms of population and consumption. And I think that needs to be more equitable distribution of wealth because too often it's a small number of consumers doing a disproportionate amount of their consuming. Um, so those are those are big worries to me, the, the growth in population and consumption. We're not, and you know, if you look in terms of climate stabilization goals, we are not near to achieving even the modest targets set by uh, the International P Panel on Climate Change and other agencies. We're not near to achieving them. And it's partly because most people don't want to make personal sacrifices and consume less. It's partly because population continues to grow. We have to change those paradigms or we will be in trouble. And lastly, what's your advice to future conservationists? Again, consider getting involved with or even working for a government agency that has jurisdiction over wildlife or land or transportation corridors. Again, departments of transportation, state and federal wildlife agencies, land manage management agencies urgently need good young people with strong conservation values and ecological mindsets. Um, I also, when I talk with young people, I often urge, this gets a, a little personal and uncomfortable for some, but I urge, you know, consider having a small, close family rather than rather than having a big family because it is such a desperate time for wildlife and for climate. I think that um, lowered fertility rates really are necessary to address these crises. And, and I think we need to create strong incentives especially at the national level, to encourage small close families and to to empower uh, girls and women to make the choices they want to make. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate speaking with you and have really enjoyed this conversation. I know I've taken a lot more of your time than uh, I initially told you, so I really appreciate no. it. Now, I've really enjoyed this too, Sean. Thank you so much. And let's um, let's make sure that we promote each other's podcasts. And I think I linked you with Jack Humphrey. It'd be great to promote your podcast. And if you can give a word for our Rewilding podcast, that would be great as well. Definitely. And I'll make sure to uh, to follow through with Jack and uh, look forward to uh, to keeping in touch in the future. I hope, I hope you will. I, I really have enjoyed our conversations. Thank you so much, Sean. Keep up the great work. Thank you.